tortoise. Hello, it's Basha here. James is away this week, so I'm in the editor's chair. And as you can probably hear from my voice, I have the cold that everyone seems to have at the moment. I hope it's uh, not going to be too distracting. But as we know, the news stops for no germs. So let's get on with things. It's Monday, the 23rd of October from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. Two Americans held hostage by Hamas for 14 days, a mother and daughter from Chicago, have been set free. Sidney Powell pleaded guilty to six counts of election interference in Georgia. Trump's former attorney will be required to testify at future trials. The Conservatives have suffered crushing defeats in two by-elections overnight, with Labour overturning substantial majorities in both Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth. The United Kingdom has been hit with floods and gale-force winds, and three people have been killed as the nation is battered by Storm Babette. So I'm joined this week by Tortoise's political editor, Kat Nealon. Hello. Hi. Our climate editor, Jeevan Vasica. Hi, Basha. Hello. And Paul Wood, who was a BBC foreign correspondent for 25 years, uh, including in the Middle East, and who now writes for The Spectator. Hello, Paul. Hello. It's nice to be here. So we're going to go around and find out what each of you thinks we should talk about this week, what should lead the news. Um, so, Kat, why don't we start with you? What's on your mind? Uh, so my... Long story short is bye-bye baby, why there are no good options left for Rishi Sunak. Okay. Is this by-election baby? It might be. Okay. Uh, Jeevan, how about you? Basha, my long story short is Georgia Maloney's family values. Ah, yes. Okay. And Paul, what are you pitching this week? Yeah, so my long story short is how Israel should fight the war in Gaza. I'm not talking about military tactics here. I'm talking about the law of war and uh, the way to fight a just war. Okay. Well, why don't we start there, Paul, because I've got so many questions about what's (laughs) happening with this ground offensive that seems to be imminent but hasn't yet started. So where where do we start with this story? What point do you think that we're at currently? Well, everybody expected that by now the ground operation would be taking place. Um, Israel likes to move quickly with these things because every Israeli general knows there are two clocks on an operation. One is the military clock and the other is the political clock. Now, these horrific pogroms, I think that's the best word for it, that took place a couple of weeks ago, gave Israel more breathing space than it's ever had before to conduct operations in Gaza, but it's not infinite. And so they want to start as quickly as possible. They've already started bombing and the Palestinians will tell you that some 4,000 people have been killed in those bombings compared, the Palestinians will point out, to some 1,400 Israelis. Um, So why hasn't it started? I think it's the hostages. Um, 200 plus hostages are being held, including dual nationals of the United States, Germany and other countries. And there have been some pretty strong hints, especially from the United States, that it is asking Israel privately to wait. Hamas is being very clever. It's released two hostages so far to Americans. They claim to have offered two more, and it's a rather strange story that nobody can get to the bottom of um, why those other two weren't released. They blame Israel, Israel blames Hamas. But Hamas can keep this going. They can release a hostage every few days uh, until the political backing for Israel's ground offensive, which will be far bloodier than the air war, starts to fade away. So I think that's where we are now. So you see the hostage situation as sort of running down the clock on the political side of things? Up until the point that Israel thinks that it can't wait any longer, 
Um, and think about, I mean, publicly, Israeli officials will say, we're not going to negotiate with a group which we vowed to wipe out. Those are the words of Israel's national security advisor. But privately, of course, there are negotiations going on through the back channel of Qatar. I've spoken to people familiar with those negotiations. They think they're making progress. Uh, imagine the, the, the conflict within the hearts of an Israeli general or an Israeli um, cabinet minister. If they go in um, to Gaza because of this horrific inciting event and end up killing the 200 plus victims who are being, of that original event who are being held hostage in Gaza, it would be psychologically very difficult for the whole country to accept. At the same time, there's this tremendous cohesion now in Israel, this tremendous desire for, for vengeance. That's the exact word that... Benjamin Netanyahu used, uh, and that's got what got me thinking about uh, just wars, really, and, and really, when they do do it, how should they fight it? So tell, tell me about that concept of just war and how that relates here. Well, the preeminent scholar of just wars is a guy called Professor Michael Maltzer, who wrote a book in the 70s called Just and Unjust Wars. And ever since then, some journalist always rings him and says, is this a just war? That's what's happened with every war that the United States has fought in since the book was published. So I asked him, uh, is this a just war? And he said what he would like to see is a war not of vengeance, which would be wrong, but a war of justice. And that means, in his view, certain things like uh, it's pretty clear that Israel's rules of engagement include, say, bombing um, a house or even a whole tower block because there's a senior Hamas official in it uh, and taking civilian casualties alongside it. And Professor Walter's view, a, even a Hamas commander has the protection of the law of war when he's at home with his family. And so he would like to see, as I think a lot of foreign governments would like to see, Israel keeping collateral damage and that terrible cliche of war, you know, innocent lives lost to a minimum. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, I talked to Professor Alan Dershowitz, who's a famous defender of Israel. In fact, he's rushing out a book now on October the 7th, tremendous speed. And he's got an idea of a, of a continuum of civilianity almost unpronounceable. But what he means is on the one end, you've got um, an innocent baby in Gaza. On the other end, you've got a terrorist. But somewhere in between, you've got Hamas officials, the people who voted for Hamas, maybe um, the people who carry ammunition for Hamas, um, who let them use their buildings, who come to their rallies. Uh, this is a controversial idea, which has got no um, standing in international law. But these are some of the arguments surrounding how Israel should fight this war. And I think what we are going to see uh, because I mean, as a BBC correspondent, I was in Fallujah, for instance. It'll be exactly like Fallujah, but worse. Um, it, because in, in Fallujah 2004, the Americans succeeded in allowing most civilians to get out. There are still a lot of civilians in Gaza. There's no easy or clean way to fight house to house and keep those civilian casualties down. And let me give you one example of the kind of dilemmas the Israeli forces might face. They get to the mouth of a tunnel, and the tunnels are extremely important. It's almost the only fixed infrastructure that Hamas has got for them to hit, because this is a guerrilla army. So a key objective is to blow up the tunnels. But they get to the mouth of a tunnel, and they're about to dump a load of TNT into it, when somebody says, wait a minute, you know, there are maybe hostages at the end of that tunnel. <laughs> then they're stuck. Mm. But, Paul, it, it, it seems to me that none of this is a surprise that if you could imagine some kind of attack from Hamas on on Israel, uh, they've used hostages before. We know about this infrastructure within Gaza. Is this something that could have been planned for, should have been better planned for? You know, it feels like lots of these questions are now being figured out on the brink of a ground invasion where actually a lot of this has precedent in terms of the terms of war and how this war could be fought. 
Yeah, when I was a defence correspondent, it was always said that every army had a plan on the shelf whenever a politician would ask. But there was always a plan, you know, whatever the scenario. But um, you say none of this is, is a surprise. In many ways, a lot of elements of this were a complete surprise. I spoke to Danny Yatom, who's a former head of Mossad. And this is a guy whose entire professional career was based on thinking the unthinkable, thinking about how bad things could get. And he just kept saying over and over how shocked he was that this had happened. But shocked that the, the fact of the attack had happened or the scale of... Because I think those are two separate things here. Like the scale of the attack is a shock, but the fact of an attack itself... I mean, previous attacks, Hamas have managed uh, in a very small way to breach the fence, have managed to smuggle people out through tunnels. They've never managed to breach the fence in, in a way that they could get 1,500 fighters out and then a bunch of civilians just pour out because the Israeli army doesn't show up. So I think the scale of the attack does give you a qualitative change, not just a quantitative change. Uh, and the other important number is 200 hostages. When you think about how Israeli policy was paralysed for five years over Gilad Shalit, who was um, a soldier who was, who was held, I think, released in 2011. And Israel then had to free 1,027 uh, Palestinian prisoners, including 300 who, in their view, were guilty of murder and um, other crimes which you know, would have seen very, very long sentences. So multiply that by 200 and the fact that it's children. I mean, as many as 50 children are held hostage. I've seen different numbers and they're not confirmed. Um, so this, I think, is a, is a completely different scenario. And no, I don't think the army and the security forces could have planned for 200 hostages in the tunnels of Gaza. Uh, of, of course, they've been thinking about how to hit the tunnels in Gaza. They've got a lot of new and quite scary military kit, you know, armoured bulldozers, armoured vehicles with just incredibly thick plating and, and um, cameras to allow uh, the people inside to shoot without exposing themselves to any danger. So they've thought about urban warfare and they've prepared for it. I don't mm. think they've prepared for this kind of crisis. And, you know, they've, they've, they've told a million people to leave um, one half of Gaza. I, I did think the Israeli military had planned for that kind of mm. operation. It, it had planned for um, forays into Gaza. This is a temporary occupation of Gaza, one half of it. Presumably they then, then tell everybody to go back to the half they've just cleared. Yeah. It's going to take weeks or months. Well, they, they said this morning, didn't they, they expect two to three months at least. Um, You've spoken to the families or the family of one particular hostage. What what was that conversation like and what, what did that conversation give you a sense of how they're sort of influencing the Israeli policy on this? I mean, I, I've spoken to, to a number of family members. I mean, they just look still stunned, you know, to 10 days, two weeks on. Um, they look washed out. They're tired. They're bewildered. All of them have got these horrible stories. You know, usually there's a pattern of they see something on the television because, you know, in, in, in decades of conflict, you know, the Israelis are, are, are tuned to something's happening. It's kind of sixth sense they put on the television. Where is it? There's one of my relatives involved. So you've got these, these stories of, of something unfolding in the South and they're desperately trying to reach their relatives on the phone. But then they think, well, wait a minute. What, what if the, when they realise it's not just rockets, it's, it's an invasion? Uh, they stop phoning the relatives because the relatives are in a safe room and the phone will give them away. Um, and then in the case of one family, for instance, um, a family friend was phoning um, the father. This is an extended family of 10. It was a father, uh, one daughter, her husband, their two children, aged three and eight, and then another sister with, with her, do uh, her daughter, aged 12 years old. So it was, it was a boy of eight and then another girl of three. Ten, ten people in all disappear. A family friend phones the father for hours and hours and then somebody just shouts in Arabic, hostage, hostage, Gilad Shalit, Gaza, and that's it, the phone's put down. 
And then they find the body of the father who'd been injured in the initial seizure and presumably was slowing the, the kidnappers down and was just dumped somewhere on the way to Gaza. So lots of uh, very distressing stories like that. But it's very interesting because, of course, every journalist who rings a hostage family says, what do you want the government to do? Do you want them to wait and not invade? Uh, all the families I spoke to, and I think this probably goes for a majority of them, are very, very carefully sticking to a non-political line saying, it's not our job to advise the government. We're just saying, make the hostages a priority. Make sure you do whatever you have to do to bring them back. But they're not, by and large, I think, getting political about it. Um, what does that translate into? I suspect it translates into a lot of caution on the part of Benjamin Netanyahu, who despite some of the rhetoric is a very cautious politician. And then you add, add to that what I assume are, are, is pressure from Germany, from the US and other Western mm. governments who have dual nationals behind the scene. That's why we're seeing this, uh, this holdup in the offensive. And it's very, very difficult to keep hundreds of thousands of soldiers or tens of thousands of soldiers revved up, you know, the engines are fueled up, they've had their briefings, they've had their stirring speeches by their commanders, and they're waiting to go. It's very, very, very difficult to keep an army in that position indefinitely. Mm, and to keep that sort of momentum. Chivan, what, what do you think? I mean, we've talked about this a lot over the last few weeks on this podcast. Um, and I'm, it feels like at this moment, we're in a sort of holding pattern. We're waiting to see what happens next. At this moment in time, what do you think is the sort of the leading element of this story? What do you think is is the bit that we should be paying the most attention to? From what Paul is saying, there are kind of two or three elements that I find really interesting. One of them is the sort of question of Israel's security competence, which we all understood to be quite high and has revealed to be um, sort of shockingly lacking really both on the intelligence failing that Paul described and also the, the huge breach of security uh, when Hamas did cross the border. Uh, I think the other aspect of this for me is the question of strategy and political leadership and whether Israel seems to be embarking on a war without end or a war without a kind of clear achievable goal and, and what that means. But I think the third part that that kind of really sort of began crystallizing for me as Paul spoke about this is the role of the hostage families and the role of public opinion in Israel and how sensitive the Israeli leadership might be to public opinion and what and how that will change. I mean, he, Paul spoke about there being a sense of consensus among the hostage families, but I wonder how that will change and split um, when, if a ground war begins. I think a lot of people will have the question of what exactly is Hamas in terms of if you think in terms of a fighting force, like are they dispersed throughout the north of Gaza? Are they taking shelter in civilian spaces? Are they in the tunnels? What what when when this ground invasion starts, what exactly is the force that Israel is going to be engaging with? Well, Hamas is a guerrilla army, and people criticize it for fighting from civilian area areas. That's what guerrilla armies do. That's almost the only thing they've got going for them. It'd be very nice for conventional forces if all the guerrillas just went and stood out in the middle of a field, you know, nice and visible to the optics and the drones, but they're not going to do that. Uh, what Hamas does have, because it's had um, this rear safe area of Gaza, has been a period of years in, in which to construct a maze of tunnels, which um, it's claimed by, by people who, you know, follow intelligence matters, are not just bunkers for the fighters and even deeper bunkers for the leaders, but are very sophisticated, for instance, rocket assembly plants. Uh, ammunition stores. Um, this, I think, is the principal target. When you talk about wiping out Hamas, um, this is the infrastructure that you have to wipe out. I think that's going to be one of the principal targets of what the Israelis are trying to do. One of the interesting political aspects of this, it's a claim that 
probably isn't even controversial in Israel, but a lot of the Israeli politicians I talked to said essentially what happened is that Benjamin Netanyahu allowed Hamas over the past several years to grow stronger as a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority. Mr. Netanyahu, it was said, wanted to stop any negotiations for a Palestinian state, uh, therefore wanted to damage the PA above all, wanted to essentially move towards annexing parts of, that, uh, of the West Bank, which is ruled by the PA with settlements, and therefore needed quiet in Gaza, and therefore allowed Qatar to pay large sums of money to Hamas, and allowed a lot of concrete to come in for aid projects that a lot of people knew, at least a portion of which would be diverted to building the tunnels. So the reckoning for Mr. Netanyahu when all this is over is not just why did they get through the fence, but why did over several years, for quite a ruthless Machiavelli, Machiavellian cynical political reason, did you allow Hamas to go stronger? Those are the questions that he'll have to answer. Mm. I've got so many questions about Netanyahu, but I feel like we should try and move on, although there are so many aspects of this to talk about. Um, Kat, we're going to turn to you now and talk about the state of UK politics. Yes, I, I mean, I feel slightly fraudulent going after Paul and and what is clearly the sort of hugely significant uh, issues in, in Israel and, and kind of possibly kind of spreading out more broadly. But um, turning sort of to domestic matters, last week, uh, the Conservatives suffered a historic by-election defeat in mid-Bedfordshire, the largest numerical majority over overturned by a by-election, and in Tamworth, the second biggest swing since the Second World War. So if the Tamworth result were replicated across the whole country, the Conservatives would lose 347 seats and would be in third place after the Lib Dems. So they wouldn't even be the official opposition anymore. We all know that by-elections are very particular. Uh, They're they're often not replicated at a general election level. But nonetheless, this is a pretty significant moment in British politics. I was talking to lots of Conservative MPs on on Friday and over the weekend about it, and they're just saying, our leave vote has left us which is the sort of 2019 red wall kind of area. And Rishi Sunak is kind of not uh, giving the the blue wall, which is the kind of more traditional conservative heartland, reason to come out and vote. So there is a, a kind of distinct possibility that they could end up just collapsing on both sides. You know, the, the kind of the, the, the theory that they might win one part of the the 2019 coalition and lose the other well actually it seems kind of increasingly likely as though it's all going to it's all going to go i mean i would say basically conservative mp's are not happy there is kind of talk about agitation letters possibly going in no confidence letters possibly going in certainly sort of pressure being applied to rishi sunak in order to do things like cut taxes and so on and people sort of talking about going home and uh, sort of preparing for an election now so spending their time kind of independently canvassing and you know trying to sort of mobilise their base in their own seat rather than from the centre. The comforting story they try to tell themselves is, well, it's not our voters switching from Tory to Labour, it is our voters not coming out. The fly in the ointment of that argument is that it is actually a sort of explicit part of Labour's strategy to what one person described to me as de-risk the Labour brand sufficiently that the core Conservative voters who would never in a million years vote Labour stay at home. 
because obviously under Jeremy Corbyn, there was this fear that if they stayed at home, you might get some kind of crazed socialist in number 10. They are hoping now that Keir Starmer does not come across like that and that people kind of feel, well, I could never vote Labour, but I'm happy to sit this one out. And that mm. is a strategy that's borrowed from 1997 to some some success. I was reading something in The Observer over the weekend, which quoted Gavin Barwell, who was Theresa May's chief of staff, who was saying that it's wrong to focus on Keir Starmer and his popularity, that there isn't really a comparison here to 97 and Tony Blair's personal popularity, that this is more of a sign that the two-year project to turn Labour into something that seems uh, stable and sensible is working. So it's not about the leader, it's about how the party as a whole is perceived. Yes, and I think, you know, the mood in in Labour at that Labour Party conference was kind of walking on eggshells a bit. I mean, the activists, you know, were jubilant, but the sort of Labour staffers were are still very cautious. They're very, very conscious that they have been close before and completely lost it at the last minute. And, and although there is this kind of, you know, well, they've been 20 points ahead in the polls for a very long time. Actually, when a campaign happens, 20 points can be narrowed and even overturned. Um, so it's not totally in the bag but the fact that it's been 20 points ish for a year and the fact that there is this sense that the conservatives are tired they don't have any kind of real strategy they don't really have anything that's sort of a policy that people can get behind and i have to say over the next few months however long it is until we have a general election there is so much bad blood now there is so much in fighting that is going to spill out. You know, we already saw it on Friday where people were sort of leaking stuff on the WhatsApp group and, you know, um, and then there would be a leak on top of that leak where someone just sent a sort of a, a middle finger emoji. You know, I mean, it's... It, it's And that's going to continue. We're going to see them fighting like rats in a bag for months. And so um, the, the, there is no discipline in the Conservative Party at the minute, which means that people are, you know, you've got sort of Suella and other leadership rivals, like overtly setting out their stall to be the next leader. And then you've got the backbenchers fighting about which direction it should be and and kind of, you know, calling each other names. Meanwhile, the kind of total opposite at Labour, absolute message discipline, to the extent that like 3am in the morning, uh, uh, standing outside one of the bars at Labour Party conference, you ask people how they're feeling and they still, you know, several pints in say, well, we're not complacent. You know, they're just, they're not, it's just night and day, the two approaches. Yeah. Paul, I'm curious from where you've been sitting in the world and with your kind of broader view on, on the news, how all of this looks to you what's happening now with the Tory party and and I suppose how this plays out in terms of our position on the world stage. I mean, I'm quite interested to know about this middle finger emoji. It's one I <laughs> might find useful myself. <laughs> I mean, it just it sounds like a mess, doesn't it? Um, it sounds a bit ridiculous. Uh, you know, but by-elections, I guess, are not an infallible guide to what happens next. But you're certainly right about it all points to a, an historic wipeout. And, um, you know, given the way they've managed the party over the past few years, maybe they even deserve that. I don't know. That's not a judgment about left and right, right and wrong. It's just, uh, you know, the, you always used to say the great cliche was that the conservative secret weapon was loyalty, but uh, not at the moment. 
So how does it how does it look from abroad? I mean, I'm just moved to Italy where they've got their own political dramas, which I think we're going to hear yes. about personal political dramas. Um, Britain does not matter in the world in the way that it did, much as British Prime Minister would like to think so. We still have a seat on the UN Security Council, which is becoming harder and harder to justify. Uh, I just don't think this registers yet. Um, if, uh, when there's a general election, if Keir Starmer um, wins, uh, I think that'll be a moment that the world sits up and takes notice, a bit like 97. Uh, you know, of course, you could still fumble the ball. So, Yes, we've got a way to go yet. Jeevan, one of the things that struck me was this sort of dual reading of after the results came in at the end of last week, um, lots of people were saying, don't read into it too much. Well, lots of Tories were saying, don't read into it too much. It's just a by-election and we shouldn't take too much from it. And then I thought, but what about Uxbridge, where there were you know, 500 votes, which seemed to transform Sunak's approach to net zero and green policies. Are those things linked? What 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 was going on there? I think there are two questions that kind of interest me here, Basha. And one of them is um, around Rishi Sunak. So I think it was pretty clear, as you say, um, after the way he seized on Uxbridge, it was pretty clear what he stood for, that he he liked motorists, he didn't like migrants, he wanted to bring on the climate apocalypse as quickly as he could. Um, but I, what I wonder about this is whether that message is unpopular. I mean, the, the message on climate is certainly pretty different from where Boris stood on climate, um, or whether it's to do with Rishi's personal unpopularity and, and how you can tell the difference between the two. The other side of this that I think is interesting is what Gaza and Israel means for the Labour Party, because I, I think you can see that in two different ways. One of them, from the Labour right, I guess, you would say, well, they've detoxified the brand. They're very grateful for the distance from Corbyn, that there's no association now between them um, and the far left of Labour on Palestine. And perhaps the other way to see it is that this could be um, this could be a tricky terrain for Keir Starmer over the next few months. Where exactly does he stand? Is there a backlash from the left? Is there potentially a backlash from Muslim voters in Britain? And I think I'm interested in seeing how that unfolds for Labour. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back to talk about Georgia Maloney's breakup. Hello, Tortoise listener. Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Paper Cuts is the fast, funny daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a roller coaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half hour package. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Subscribe on your favourite app. So, Jeevan, for those who aren't aware, what's going on in the Italian prime minister's private life and why should we care? So, Basha, just before I, I recap on the story and remind listeners of what happened with Georgia Maloney, I just want to talk about the family for a moment, because I think this is the setting for this story. And I think I want to talk about the meaning of the family in politics. So, for, for decades now, really, particularly on the right, the family has been seen as a sort of counterbalance to social upheaval. So banks may collapse, energy and food prices may go up, the world may change, but the family provides a source of stability. It's the spine of society. And that's a, a stronger idea on the right than on the left, really. But I think it's present in, in all parties. And what we've seen happen last week with Georgia Bologna is that she's announced her breakup from her partner, a man called Andrea Gianbruno, um, who's the father of her child. And 
this this breakup has happened um, because of his embarrassing and frankly slightly creepy behaviour, which we don't need to go into the details of. But what I think is interesting about this story is that it shows the gap between um, the sort of public rhetoric of conservative parties and the private lives of their leaders. And she herself was raised by a single mother. As I say, she she's never married the father of her child. She seems and she's she's walked out on him, which you know are all kind of things that liberals would applaud. But she's also been someone who's been a supporter of the traditional family. Uh, she's been a fan of Pope Benedict, who had very conservative views. She's critical of abortion, and she's an opponent of um, same-sex couples being allowed to adopt children. So, and I think we've, we've seen this sort of gap in a number of conservative leaders. So you've seen a difference between Boris's personal life and uh, the views of some in his party. Um, you've obviously seen a difference between Trump's personal life, the flashes that we've had of it, and the support that he's had from conservative evangelicals. What I think this tells us is that society is changing and that people's lives don't fit with traditional conservative rhetoric. And I think, but I think the problem for these parties is that they don't have another idea. And the reason that they don't, they don't have another idea is that when, whenever there are advances in women's rights around maternity leave, around uh, care of the elderly, for example, whenever women are freed of these responsibilities, it costs the state money. So obviously, for decades, for centuries, women have provided huge amounts of unpaid labor. And pretty much no one who's in favor of a small state wants to expand the state to take up this space. So that, I think, is the dilemma that they're wrestling with. You know, everyone's in favor of people having freedom, uh, people making choices as they wish to live their lives, pursuing their own happiness. But when it comes to costing the state money, that's where there's a dilemma that can't be reconciled. Mm. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you for the details, the lewd details, the inner tabloid <laughs> editor in me uh, must hear them. I mean, I read them over the weekend, but can you just give us a sense of exactly why it is that they've broken up now? Because not long ago, he made some comments about um, women getting drunk and uh, being victims of rape that caused quite a lot of criticism. So what's 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 he said now that's sort of gone beyond that? Yeah, and it's interesting that Maloney actually supported him when it came to those comments about rape. I mean, she basically said that um, her mother had advised her to keep her eyes peeled and look after her own security. But these, these latest comments from Gianbruno, there's a sort of hot mic moment, basically, where he tells a female colleague, why didn't I meet you before? And then um, another recording where he's also speaking to a female colleague, where he says they need an another participant on the show. And he says, let's have a threesome, even a foursome. The killer me to allegation is that he essentially, allegedly, although supposedly it's on tape, said that somebody would get a job if they slept with him. Um, that, that's the me too thing. Also, uh, the kind of the, the, the tabloid headline for me was that he was grabbing his groin, playing with his crotch uh, while sort of talking to somebody in the studio, which was also caught on a camera. Right. And I, I believe they'd essentially been separated for a while, but the kind of this was the uh, uh, the thing that pushed her into making the public declaration. Mm. I think she's taking a personal day today, and you can sympathise with that. Yes, in terms of Italian politics, I mean. It wasn't that long ago that Berlusconi was in power. We know the kinds of attitudes that he had towards women, towards relationships. So why, I guess this is a question maybe for Paul, why is this so different? Is this because this is the partner of a female politician and therefore the dynamic is different? You know, you know Berlusconi paid a, an 18-year-old, or some reports would say a 16-year-old prostitute to entertain him uh, in front of others at a party, didn't even hide it. Um, you know, Trump has somehow managed to keep hold of uh, 
large numbers of evangelical voters, despite having the most unchristian life you can possibly imagine. Georgia Maloney, on the, on the other hand, is, I think, quite a relatable figure. Brought up by a single mother, you know, her father had, had criminal convictions and went to prison. You know, worked her way up uh, as, as a cleaner, as a barista, didn't go to university. You know, it's quite, quite a sort of scrappy past and quite a sort of feisty persona as well. I was um, in Lampedusa when she came down for a few hours with Ursula von der Leyen and was um, confronted by an angry crowd who blocked her motorcade. Um, the security men were very nervous. She got out of the car, slammed the door and marched up to the leader of the crowd to confront him. You know, all the security men were, were terrified of you know, how all this could go wrong. She sort of wagged her finger in his face and they had a bit of a debate on the street. So this, this is a very different person, I think, in a very different background. I just feel a bit sorry for her. Uh, yes, there are questions to be asked about her family politics and how this intersects with her personal life. Um, is it different because she's a woman? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, I think every woman in Italy can sympathise with her dumping the guy, sad as it is for their seven-year-old daughter. Well, thank you all. I mean, it's sort of performative to try and uh, rank the things that we've talked about today in some sort of hierarchy. I think it's clear and obvious that Israel and Gaza is the lead story. I think you've all framed it in the right way, which is that we need to maintain a sort of empathetic human angle on this as the politics plays out in various directions. I mean, I've got questions about what happens for Netanyahu politically, questions about whether this spills over into Lebanon, questions about how long and exactly how this ground invasion will take and how it will unfold. Um, I also this morning saw a video of uh, a journalist who had been handed two babies in Gaza that had been involved uh, in a bombing and those sorts of things don't leave you uh, easily, equally seeing the testimony of some of the hostage families is very hard to forget. So I think we can confidently say that we will lead this week on Israel. I think the by-elections would come second for me just because I think we can see this political shift happening in this country. The Maloney story, Jeevan, is, is interesting and I think your framing of it as a story about family values in politics is, is the right way to think about it. Thank you all for joining. Paul, especially, thank you for joining from Rome. If you think that there was another story that we should have discussed uh, in this episode, you can email us with your thoughts, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Giles Wattel, my colleague, will be here on Friday with another episode of the News Meeting Live, which we record here in our newsroom, and he's going to be joined by The Times radio presenter and columnist Matt Chorley. So do listen then and have a very good week. What comes to mind when you think of Amber Heard? A liar? A survivor? A narcissist? The trial of Depp v. Heard was a global phenomenon, but I want to know, was it a fair fight? I'm Alexi Mostris, the host of Sweet Bobby and Hoaxed. In my new podcast, I'm investigating whether Amber Heard was the victim of an organised trolling campaign. Just search for Who Trolled Amber wherever you get your podcasts.